There's a hyper-rationalist and a truly insane person competing for brain space inside of this guy. We saw part of this before in the dog days of Tesla. He sounded like he belonged in a loony bin half the time, and yet he did it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, November 28th, and on today's Media Monday, I'm joined by John Kelly to talk about how Elon Musk manages his time, why Bob Iger can't sit still, and what the demise of the tech news site Protocol says about how not to build a healthy media business in 2022. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Because it's Monday, it's Media Monday, and I'm joined by John Kelly. Uh, John, I have this experience like over the holidays generally going back, I guess, ever since I've had a smartphone where my time spent on my phone goes down dramatically over like Thanksgiving and Christmas, New Year's, whatever, which is healthy. But like every time I open Twitter over this weekend, I, I feel like... I just saw an Elon Musk tweet. <laughs> like, and everyone has a different map. Everyone has a different social network. Everyone's experience on, on Twitter is different depending on who you follow. Did you bother looking at Twitter over Thanksgiving or were you actually enjoying your real life? I was doing a little bit of enjoying real life and certainly doing a lot of a lot of work. But um, I never spent a ton of time on Twitter, honestly, uh, as, as you know. I'm certainly a student of the inning one of the Elon Musk Twitter CEO panic frenzy, which I think is what um, what may have taken hold in in Sacramento, where the where the Hambies were were regaling in a little uh, <laughs> Thanksgiving uh, chatter. You know, I will lay my cards on the table here, man. I feel like there is a difference between Elon Musk CEO and Elon Musk world's uh, first rate narcissist, and they do overlap from time to time and intertwine, but that they are actually largely separate entities battling for the brain space of, of this very strange character. That's sort of what I was getting at. Like, I just kept wondering, how are you able to run this company in a very chaotic way, clearly? And still just like be constantly like burrowing deep in your mentions and replying to like Alyssa Milano. And to our boy, uh, Teddy also. He, <laughs> he was replying to Teddy every weekend. Yeah, and like Ben Smith. I was just struck that like I kept seeing the dude tweet. And at some point it's like, how, how do you have the attention to both run this company and tweet? But also you have other companies, SpaceX, Tesla. What are you doing with your time? And that's on top of the fact that he has like eight kids. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to make the same point. He's a he's a busy guy uh, who's obviously addicted to this. But it's funny. There are a couple of moments where you do see sparks of what is obvious, the genius of this guy. I believe men is word that he wouldn't take SBF's financial commitment. I have no evidence of that. But I, I imagine that there is some like extraordinary business bullshit detector that does exist with him. But the problem is, you know, we saw part of this before when in the dog days of Tesla, when, when it, well before that was a trillion dollar company, when they had a hard time rolling cars out of, I think, the, um, the warehouse in, in Nevada. And he would sleep on the factory floors. He sounded like, you know, he, he belonged in, in a loony bin half the time. And yet he did it. 
media and the automotive industry are both bizarre businesses in that one requires a ton of regulation and safety, and the other is built around the unique talents of people, which requires a certain human touch. He obviously could give a shit or give very little shits about the human touch part, and it, it seemed like he steamrolled through the regulation piece, obviously the, the take private thing turned into a financial slap on the wrist. But at the same time, the cars did roll out of the lot. So I'm, I'm not being an Elon apologist. I know I've I've been added at that before on some of these media money appearances. I, I'm not, but it's just absolutely confounding to me because there's a, a hyper-rationalist and a, a truly insane person competing for brain space inside of this guy. Maybe that's the problem with these like sort of, you know, fake Brian Erlacher follicles that have been planted in his head to give him that uh, <laughs> incredible mane. Wait, did Erlacher get hair plugs? Yeah, Erlacher got hair plugs. Google Erlacher. He'll be unrecognizable. I thought Brian Erlacher, you know, had a pretty good look on with his bald dome. That's interesting. Okay, I'll Google it later uh, when we're not talking about media stuff. <laughs> yeah, besides The Rock, I don't think anybody wants to be bald. Uh, that's just my theory. Fair. I mean, and both of us have fantastic heads of hair. It's the one area where Elon Musk uh, does absolutely <laughs> look up to us. <laughs> True. Well, speaking of leadership changes... I want to talk to you about Bob Iger and Disney. I did want to talk to you just what your general perspective is, not necessarily on the ins and outs of like how this went down and what he's doing, but kind of what do you think he's going to do with Disney that hasn't been happening over the last couple of years? Like, do you see any grand changes going on at this huge company? Well, speaking of great hair, right? <laughs> You've talked to the team about some of the, the immediate aftershocks. And I think that now that we've had a week to sit with this, a couple of things are, are becoming clear. First, I will tell you that the minute this happened, I remembered a story I heard a year and change ago about the seeming friction between Iger and the Disney board about compensation. I heard that, that various people felt that um, Iger wasn't fairly compensated given the historic run he'd had at the company. If you looked at people like Les Moonves or, or geez, you know, our pal David Zaslov, they're making multiples of what Iger made. I mean, you know, based on stock performance. Anyway, these stories are never fully true. They, they always involve a lot of interpretation. But regardless, the moment the news came out, I immediately thought of that and <laughs> imagined to myself, boy, they must be paying this guy a shitload of money. And I presume it's an extraordinary compensation package that also includes immense triggers upon success based on the stock uh, returning and crossing the thresholds from, you know, let's say March 2021, which I think is when it was at its peak. So I imagine that Iger is getting what he deserves. I know CEO compensation is not a friendly topic, but if you think about the tens, if not potentially 100 plus billion that his board is asking him to deliver, I think a couple hundred million dollars actually probably seems like that's worth it. It sounds absurd to say, but when you think about how much wealth he'll be creating for shareholders, it's justifiable on some level, or at least that's the culture we live in. Bill Simmons had Matt on on the Bill Simmons podcast, did his A block on the Bill Simmons podcast I know. <laughs> on Bob Iger, which I love. And they were making the point, which is a counterpoint to my first take on some of this stuff. It's like, how do these like old rich guys, why can't they be content just to like, retire. Well, I have no and, answer like, for you there. Hang Peter. out in St. Bart's. I don't either. Like, like, dude, just you made so much money, like go enjoy your life, but they can't resist. And anyway, they both made the point that he probably missed the clout. You know, people return your phone calls like you're in the game, you're in the conversation, you know, you're in the puck milieu. <laughs> but it feels like Iger would come back for like $1 just to like be in the game and like shiv Chapek on the way out. Yeah, there are two things I think that are going on here. One is that Iger 
we have to remember worked at the Walt Disney Company and before that, you know, the companies that have been acquired by Walt Disney, like, you know, Cap City ABCs for 50 years. So this is uniquely in his blood the way it would be in, in you know, a, a founder's blood like, like Steve Jobs. Now, again, I don't want to get inside the guy's head, but I have to assume that he viewed Chapek's poor performance as personal, that he really knocked the train off the track in, in pretty profound ways. And I think the ones that probably got under his crawl the most, again, I'm not reading the guy's mind, was the way that, that Chapek took away the power from the creative executives and moved it to Kareem Daniel, which I think was the, the original sin. And we can talk more about that because that is a trend in media that is playing out now disastrously. I think that that is one of the sort of mini disasters of the Chris Licht era is that this is a, a, a gifted programmer. Why is he acting like a bean counter? You know, we, we see this at other places like at NBC, which, you know, goes from the Andy Lack era to the Caesar Condi era. These are, you know, creative businesses that are now being run by professional managers. That's unusual. I think Iger uh, was frustrated by that. I think also Bill mentioned this offline when Iger signaled that he was moving towards investing and he, and he signed that deal with Josh Kushner's Thrive. Iger is an operator. He's not an investor. And, I, and you don't have to know the man to say that. He's somebody who is in it. And investors by nature have to be thinking in a different sort of strategic realm where they're disconnected on some level to the portfolio companies. They have to be able to remove themselves. That is the trade of a great rational investor. Iger has been in the trenches for 50 years. So it's hard to imagine how he could just reverse that. And also, yes, the guy is 70-something years old. His kids are grown. His younger kids are in college. And he didn't want to paint watercolors and go on long boat trips. Like, good for him. I give the guy credit. Like, he's coming back to to finish what he started. And he deserves credit for that. All right, John, when we come back, I want to talk to you about maybe a site that people aren't that aware of called Protocol that was recently shut down. We'll be right back. Hey, John, 10 days ago, we were met with the news that Protocol, which is the tech news website launched by former Politico owner Robert Albritton just back in 2020, is going to be shut down. And I think they had like 50, 60 staffers. The goal here, and Albritton, I think, said this when they launched. Uh, Here's the quote, actually. I would love for this protocol. I would love for this to be as big as, if not larger than, Politico right now. Albritton told Vanity Fair back in 2019. Obviously, uh, Protocol did not become as big as Politico. But, you know, it did have some buzz, but it never took off. So why, John, would a tech-focused news site started by the former owner of Politico, which is a healthy business now, owned by Axel Springer, why did it never take off? I actually, I have a lot of impressions when I look into the, into the Protocol uh, Rorschach test. The first is I believe strongly that the way media companies are born has a significant bearing on, on what they grew up to be. And I have to believe in my gut that Robert Alberton must have fantasized about buying the information. And if he was unable to do so clearly, because Jessica Lesson wasn't a seller, he must have been focused on how to replicate it how to create some sort of Silicon Valley-focused media entity that had the seriousness of Politico and the news-breaking ability of Kara Swisher's recode, and he probably needed to do so, at least he thought, under a new brand filter. So Protocol, I think, was sort of created on a whiteboard. They actually asked me if I would um, edit it, or they they dangled something to me. I was obviously, I was already leaving for for TPG. But it it seemed like it was a test to media company. It didn't seem like it had a sort of there, there. The real other interesting piece of this, and Sarah Fisher at Axios is the one who broke the news, and, and she's got a lot of the insight here. You know, it was it was an ad-based 
business. It had about 60 people. I think it made about six or so million dollars in 21 and was going to make less in, in 22. And the ad-based business is struggling. And Protocol found itself in this really tricky spot where it was too small to compete with the other ad-based media companies like Vox and wasn't making the sort of work that the information is, which, you know, to, to give an example, which is a total direct-to-consumer experience where they are kicking the stones of stories um, that their consumer base finds uniquely interesting and they're doing it in a way that that is intended to not compete with the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. So I think Protocol never really knew what it was. And I think on, on a bigger level too, I have noticed that the Axel-based media portfolio does seem to be making the, the sort of changes you'd expect from a company that values its reputation as an uh, incredible operator and also is backed by KKR. This is the sort of traditional narrative of, of private equity, but you know, Morning Brew was cutting costs, probably responsibly given the ad market we're going to be seeing. Insider made some noise the other day about moving a number of its uh, paywall content, I think, to the other side of the barrier or the moat to optimize the advertising revenue. Maybe it's not surprising that after the political acquisition that Mateus's guys came in and, and recognized that this wasn't working and that it wasn't worth it for them to continue to operate it. You know, 60 people, I don't know. I mean, you could do the math here. It's, they're, they're probably burning, you know, maybe $14 million a year on this. Uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of matrix costs that are absorbed by Politico. But if it's you know, not a path for its profitability, it probably wasn't worth it. And I think that Axel guys deserve a lot of credit because they're laser focused on their operations and protocol didn't seem like it was breaking through the market. Yeah. And I think there are a couple mistakes made. One, they launched in 2020. By then, it was already clear that the ad supported media business was sort of withering, like just broadly. I mean, I think the last great big ad supported media company, Axios, was launched in 2016 and like not a lot since then. I mean, they're diversified beyond just ads, of course, but launching an ad supported news website in the year 2020 seems bananas unless you have tons of money. Absolutely. And then two, why not fold your tech coverage into Politico and run it through Politico? Because like, yes, Politico covers like all the insider stuff in, in DC and they cover politics, but they also cover like Europe and they cover agriculture and they cover this and they cover that. Like, why should Politico not cover tech broadly? Because the Washington Post covers tech, the Washington Journal covers tech, New York Times covers tech. Like, why did Protocol have to be this separate website? So th those two things felt like pretty big mistakes. And then like, it's also kind of like oversaturated. Like, do we need more tech media brands out there? I don't know. Even two years ago, that felt like, is this really necessary? I totally agree with you. I think between 2016 or 2015 and 2019, when, when this project was pulled off the ground, there was an infatuation with sort of unicorn culture. You know, th this was an era when I feel like people were looking at CB Insights to see how many billion dollar valuation startups were, were in the market. It was, you know, the era that, that Theranos rose and, and fell in. A number of publishers thought that this was a future area of sticky coverage. BuzzFeed invested a lot in it. I don't know if Ben would have, in retrospect, said that it was successful. A lot of companies found out what I certainly did at the time, which is it's a tiny audience. It's a really, really small community of people that care about the business of technology rather than the sort of consumer side, which is the kind of Walt Mossberg-esque gadget piece. I think that they 
created a separate brand filter because they believe they needed one in order to, to sell that kind of advertising. But then again, you just made the point, I think the life cycle of a company like Quartz really tells you the story that there was a moment in time when media companies were trying to create basically luxury digital products on the internet and they did it uh, on the open web, thinking that they could charge these sort of vanity CPMs to go adjacent to the content. And they did for a little while. And I, and I bet the protocol had some success early on. But over time, as programmatic advertising took hold and the CPMs went down, and that was the sort of great delusion of, of that area of digital media, people thought that the CP, eCPMs would keep going up, but they ended up continuing to fall. That protocol, which it never quite knew what it stood for editorially. These decisions are tough and painful because these are, you know, these are 60 people who are losing jobs around the holiday. But it was, I think, probably a no-brainer for, um, for Axel. What you just said is a great North Star for any media company, political campaign, business. Like, what is your point of view? What is your clear and consistent point of view? What is your reason for being here? Why do you exist? And, you know, if you look at, like, things that don't exist anymore, Protocol, Quibi, CNN Plus, they never had, you know, a clear mission other than let's create some inventory for some ads, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that doesn't give the consumer any reason to like read or watch what you're making. And so like, you just need, need to know why you're in the game in the first place before you can make money. John, I'll let you go. I just want to know, I Googled, quote, Brian Erlocker with hair. He does look very different. He looks like a guy who would do like a Skechers ad or like an yes. ad like Untuck It. Oh my God. Untuck, untuck It shirts. It. Yes, Untuck Like it. <laughs> the alpha male ideal in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, like the guy who's like, Housewives are like, ooh, he's handsome. You know, that kind of, that kind of <laughs> dude. It looks good. It's just, you're right. It's totally shocking. It's totally shocking. Untucked shirts. You you have me uh, lying on the uh, rolling on the floor here, Peter. I don't know what to say to you. That was the most perfect description <laughs> of, of uh, post hair Brian Urlacher ever. Well, um, speaking of uh, hair plugs, I'll leave you with this. Uh, your governor in New Jersey, Phil Murphy, has I think gotten some hair plugs. I encourage everyone to Google the before and after. Phil Murphy hair picks, especially because he's thinking about running for president. Uh, and it is a it is a sight to see. Boy, I'll be checking this out. And uh, for sure, <laughs> we will be discussing this on next week's episode of uh, of Media Monday. I actually, I, I saw the governor in person uh, not long ago. And from, from my vantage point, um, it looked real. So, hey, if they're plugs, he's going to the right guy. Just don't go the Joe Buck route. Um, <laughs> all right, man. I'll see you in the Slack. All right. Talk to you later, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 